0: Okay, folks, well, welcome back to The Solar Coaster. We're here with a great uh, group of friends, really a longtime uh, past contributor and friend, Mr. Brent Alderfer uh, from Community Energy and a couple of, uh, of, of professors from Princeton University. That's a first for us, Jay. We haven't had Prince, uh, Princeton profs on before, so I'm pretty excited about that, Jesse and Barry. It's Barry Rand and Jesse Jenkins. I'm going to start out by saying aloha to Brent. How are you doing today, Brent?
1: We're doing well. It's good to uh, be with you again.
0: Yeah, and, I, and we're recording this on Zoom here, so we are able to check out that background over there in uh, New Hope area of Pennsylvania, Bucks County. Love that area. What a cool place to, to, to be living. I didn't realize you were running the show from over there. So If you can't live in
1: Hawaii, this is a pretty good place.
0: <laughs> it's a great place. I love it out there. I love it out there. And we got Barry uh, Rand and Jesse Jenkins. Barry, where are you calling in from, sir?
2: I'm calling in from Princeton, New Jersey, in my, about in my backyard.
3: All right. And how about you, Jesse? Yeah, Princeton as well, just down the road from Barrie, and uh, we spent a lot of time over there in uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania as well, because that's where my <laughs> wife's from, so I've uh, journey over that way quite frequently on the weekends, and it's a beautiful part of the country.
0: Excellent. What a fun place to hang out. I can, I can remember just the vibe of New Hope, Pennsylvania, and Princeton. These are really cool walking towns where you can have a mm-hmm. lot of fun, and I got to tell you, I, I was reading about your uh, your institute, the uh, Anlinger Institute, did I say it correctly, guys? Anlinger?
2: Andlinger Center. For energy Andlinger and Center. Environment.
0: And uh, you know, I, I was trying to imagine what it would be like to be around all these really smart, uh, climate-oriented, renewable energy guys in Princeton, and I thought, what a great experience that must <laughs> be, you know, to be around all those brilliant people. So, uh, gentlemen, we're here today to learn about this new partnership you got going on. Why don't we start out with Brent a little bit, and um, and just get a sense of how Community Energy has been doing since our last show? We did a show with you, I, I want to say about a year ago. Is that right?
1: That's right, and uh, actually, one of the things we talked about then was that as developers, we're seeing the economics. I think we talked about it, um, not just in uh, high sunny areas like the Southwest, but in the Northeast where there's lots of load and where we live and operate. That the economics are such that when we're bidding projects, we know that we can uh, we can win, we can beat some of the current generation with. Uh, solar, which is uh, really a new development in the last, I'd say, three years, even, that the prices at scale have let us compete, and so we know we've got the energy to actually make a difference on climate change if we can build it out, and if it makes sense when we put it all together with the other resources and make sure the lights stay on, right? So we know the economics are there, but what we're really pleased to have put together is uh, to be working with the Anlinger Center and Princeton expertise to help us map out a bigger picture for what a blueprint might look like, you know, and then we and others can develop it. But, you know, it ought to fit together when you're done. You don't want to build a bunch of things that uh, don't work when you're at the, you know, 10 year mark. So that's what led to that. That's the concept and we're pleased to be part of. It.
0: Isn't that interesting? You know, we haven't seen a lot of kind of full-scale analysis of the U.S. grid or of different regions and how this is all going to fit together. So when you brought that up, I thought, wow, this is really uh, very exciting, very cutting edge stuff. You know, we, we have had a couple of high-level discussions, but nothing, I haven't read anything very detailed. So why don't we jump over to, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure if it's Jesse or Barry, want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the, what you're up to over there.
3: Yeah, sure. I'll, maybe I'll start. Um, so in my research group, we focus on the sort of big picture questions that looking at how the regional or national scale energy systems fit together and, you know, what role different individual technologies like solar or wind or new battery technologies or energy storage technologies or more advanced um, you know, next generation technologies like, uh, you know, new designs for flexible carbon capture systems for natural gas plants or, Um, enhanced geothermal energy systems that try to use techniques like hydraulic fracturing to open up um, artificial reservoirs for geothermal energy production and maybe even could use those reservoirs to store energy uh, in the form of pressure in that field so we're doing a study to look at that right now as Mm. well so we kind of think about you know the big picture how do these different technologies fit together and we try to use those um, you know modeling outcomes you basically put together a a model of what the energy system um, how it operates, what are the engineering constraints and what are the economic and kind of policy incentives. And then we can see sort of what falls out of that and use it not like a crystal ball really to predict the future, but more to explore what the future might look like. Um, and when we're talking about big transitions and large changes in how we make and use energy, you know, having a little sandbox that you can play with and see what the future might look like um, is a useful thing to have. And so that's the kind of modeling that we do. And we're excited to work with, um, with Brent and the community energy team To really take a deep dive into the PJM power system, which is the largest electricity market in the country by volume. And it's of course where we are here in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, um, the P and J of PJM Um, and it now extends all the way out into parts of Indiana, Ohio, Illinois. So it's a big chunk of the mid Atlantic and Midwest. And it's an interesting place to look because it hasn't seen the kind of rapid deployment of wind and solar that we've seen um, maybe in the western U.S. or Hawaii or or parts of the Midwest. So there's still a long way to go. Um, But the economics, as Brent was saying, are starting to look really favorable for pretty quick, rapid reductions in emissions that can be achieved by shutting down coal plants and replacing the the energy output with um, a lot of new solar and wind and the sort of flexibility and capacity with a combination of those renewables and um, both new storage and existing natural gas plants. And so we're really trying to look at how that combination plays and fits together and, and what, how fast and how quickly we can um, and deeply we can cut emissions.
0: You know, uh, it's interesting that you bring that, that topic up about shutting down existing plants and switching them to renewable energy-based energy systems and the economics and the timing of that. I know that's a favored. Topic of Jason Bearcard on the line, who I neglected to <laughs> introduce in the beginning. Jason's actually calling in from Osaka right now. Jay, any uh, any ideas on that there?
4: Yeah, we're still here. No, I mean the, the one the one little phrase in in the article uh, that you sent me really caught me out was that was the solid state grid aspect. That yeah. that 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 piqued my interest right away. Um, and I and I'd like to talk about that more. What 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 you see as a solid state grid Um, because because replacing individual components as you say is all well and good but they need to be able to talk to each other when we have these distributed resources they need to be able to be managed um, collectively and and right now we don't have the infrastructure for that type of stuff so this is something that you that you look at
3: Yeah, maybe Brent could talk a bit more about that. But what I gather from that term is the, you know, the idea that we're moving from, you know, thermal generators, coal and gas plants primarily that have, you know, rotating inertia from their generators. And we use Mm -hmm. that, you know, for a lot of reliability services that we just kind of get for free from these, you know, big hunks of spinning metal basically that, that help keep the grid stable. And solar PV and, and, uh, and lithium ion batteries and even wind, which has some inertia, but is generally not synchronized with the grid, are really different beasts. Um, and so, you know, if we think about a future where we're using, you know, we have some hours of the day when, you know, solar and wind and batteries are meeting, you know, basically all, if not all of our energy needs. How do we keep that, you know, kind of uh, inverter connected, you know, quote unquote, solid state grid up and running? Um, And those are really some of the interesting challenges that that come when you push the penetration of these technologies uh, further and further and, uh, you know, worth exploring closely.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's no uh, perfect way to give a picture to the broader public of this grid that we all live under with uh, electricity. It is a big machine with, as uh, Jesse said at the moment, a lot of moving inertia that keeps that thing humming along. And the transition will naturally mean that we have less thermal, which means smoke and uh, movement. And we're gonna have to replace it with uh, resources as Jesse described that are basically electronic. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I think it conveys to folks, it's not a perfect term, but is that you need some smarts to do that because uh, you could actually, we as developers alone, could actually fashion up a grid that's 80% decarbonized. But if we don't have some thinking, like we hope to get out of this partnership, (laughs) it might not be the optimal, most efficient uh, use of each of the resources because the way they fit together across thousands of miles with different operating parameters and different economics is really a puzzle that needs uh, both developer input, we think, but more importantly, it needs a big picture blueprint and that's what we're trying to do here, Joshua and Jason. So you just didn't see what you think of uh, think of our effort.
0: Oh, well, I think it's super exciting. Uh, first of all, to know that this is happening and kind of the state of affairs in the Northeast, you know, when we think from the perspective of Hawaii, of course, right now, we're just coming out of our RFP phase two. We've got about a gigawatt that's being ready to deploy it's something like four to five billion dollars of investment into the community. That's right now really Bad, badly hit by the coronavirus, right? So one of the worst impacted uh, cities in the country, I think the second worst impacted city in the country is that picture you see behind you, Kahului. Uh, so the, you know, renewable energies has the opportunity right now in a very tangible way to make a difference in this community. Uh, but with the type of systems that are being deployed out here, we're, we're, we're preparing to change out effectively uh, Jay, is it Ma'alaya and also Kahului? There's a timeline. I think it's Kahului yep. first. Yeah,
4: Kah- Kahului's first. Um, in 2022, that shuts down. Um, but by the end of the construction of this RFP phase two, we're going to be at approximately 80%. Yeah,
0: that's, that's, we're, we're 20% off of our 100% mandate. It, but it is 20. but it is
4: always that last 10% that's going to be the most difficult. <laughs> that's that, yeah. that, that spinning that spinning reserve. So it's it's a big question. And that's the reason why we're really interested in what you're doing. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and likewise interested in Hawaii as a I think some of your public officials have started calling it a postcard from the future yeah. <laughs> for the rest of us, right? You're pioneering sure. what this looks like in <laughs> in small fun. island grids too that don't have a lot of you know you can't you know spread out the variability from the wind and the sun across a whole continent the way we can in the Eastern Interconnect. So it's a, it's a really challenging uh, test case and, and also something that we you know we're all learning from.
0: I'm going I'd like to ask you something that's kind of a bit of a uh... I don't know, maybe a bit of a lark, but you know, do you, you remember when Elon Musk was talking about how we could power the entire United States you know, with like this one little <laughs> section was, of Texas yeah. or something, one little section of Arizona? And of course, wherever it was in Mexico. Well, yeah, <laughs> so, uh, of course, you know, in our minds, we know that we have to take care of our grid here. It's a it's a relatively small grid, right? And uh, but it, uh, you're talking about transmission and how it impacts decisions of of systems and locations and types and all the different uh, new opportunities that emerge from, you know, like you were describing earlier. I mean, are there opportunities to locate large systems in, in in distant areas? Is that a a type of model that is realistic? Is that something that could happen to some degree? Or is it more of a a number of systems located
3: strategically in very in different proximity? I mean, what does it look like? Yeah, that's exactly the kind of things that we're looking at in in this study. So we have a pretty, you know, pretty detailed assessment that we performed for another study um, called the Net Zero America project that's looking at emissions reductions um, through 2050 for the whole economy. So not just electricity, but economy wide. We did a pretty good assessment for that of all the places in the country that might be suitable for building wind and solar. Not quite as detailed as the kind of mapping that, you know, Brent and Community Energy and other developers would do for picking individual project sites, but it gives us a Nationwide view of, you know, here are the areas that you might want to think of as off limits for development because they're, you know, steeply, you know, steep mountainsides or forested areas or protected landscapes or Or um, urban areas or the like. And so from there, we get a good sense of where we might be able to build and then we can use those inputs in our model to think about The trade offs between, um, you know, building in a higher quality wind or solar location and expanding the grid to, to reach yes. that area or maybe you know you don't build the highest quality place ever but you save on transmission costs um and right. so it's interesting to look at those trade-offs and for solar one of the you know brenda because your take on this but one of the things we're starting to see is that because solar is getting so much cheaper you know the capex the the dollar per you know watt cost is so much lower um but transmission costs are staying more or less the same that trade-offs actually shifting so that, whereas it maybe made sense a decade ago to think about, you know, piping all your power from Arizona, where you have the best quality solar in the world, uh, you know, to the Northeast or something. Now there's not a huge difference between solar in say North Carolina and solar in New Jersey, or solar in New Jersey and solar in, you know, in Southern Missouri or something. And so it's a little different than wind, which is more localized um, And where, so what we're seeing is a lot of the grid expansion in our models is driven more by accessing high quality wind and the solar tends to get kind of spread around and, and it's pretty close to demand. But I'd be curious on your take, Sperry, and, and, uh, and Brent too, because I need to look at this.
1: That's yeah, exactly I mean, it. Exactly. I was gonna say real quickly, how long ago, 10 years ago, we were talking about, you could take a postage stamp part of Kansas and supply the whole uh, US. But that's what's exciting about the economics that we now have in this partnership, if I can say it, is we can talk about that, and I'm a big fan of Elon Musk, actually. <laughs> but you can talk about it, but until you actually look in a particular region, in a particular transmission zone, our initial run before we brought in the, uh, the Princeton expertise, we looked at the transmission that's already in place in the Mid-Atlantic and think that we built out enough transmission that we probably can get to 80, maybe, we'll see, but we can get close at least to an 80% decarbonization without building potentially any transmission, just the kinds of interconnection costs that typically go with development. So those are the questions that, those are the two ends of the scale, right? Everything from Arizona or Kansas and everything within our existing transmission. And that's what, it's time to get an actual blueprint, an economic blueprint on the ground. And um, we may not have time to go into actually the economic market design that then follows from the decisions that Jesse and uh, Barry come up with. But you know you can have financing that works for merchant natural gas plants, and it may or may not work for a twenty-five year capital investment in solar. So first, what's an optimal blueprint, and then second, what are the economic market design? It's a, it's um. If you like puzzles, it's fascinating how much uh, there is to be done. But the 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 most interesting thing is that the in our view is that we see that the economics are now there to build it out. It's no longer uh, you don't need to be frustrated. The public is, I think, often frustrated. What can we do about climate change in this sector? The solutions are right in front of us, we think. I don't know if Jesse and Barry agree, but that's what's exciting about this partnership.
0: Barry, would you like to jump in here? Sorry, I didn't get a chance to get you in yet. Yep. Uh, no
2: problem. Love,
0: to, love to hear from you.
2: Yeah, so my expertise is in, uh, I would say, materials emerging, semiconductor materials that will find their way into future technologies like solar. Um, and um as such you know i can i can definitely comment on some of the things that jesse said which which were regarding and also brent following up on what brent just said regarding the distribution of solar and wind i mean the if you look at the resource for solar uh power hitting let's say the continental us it's about a factor of two from sunniest locale to least sunny locale across the continent and it's about the same for wind the difference though is that solar power uh, conversion is directly proportional to the solar power, but wind conversion is proportional to the cube of the wind. And so you want to find those windiest spots. If you don't, you're really making that system cost a lot more money. Whereas solar, can, you can really site them in places that don't seem very sunny, but you'll get still half the power converted as you would in, say, the sunniest parts of Arizona. And so it doesn't. The economics don't really play out when you think about adding a lot of very long distance transmission to the picture.
1: Yeah. Using
2: what you have ends up making more sense.
0: I see. And then you had mentioned some new uh, semiconductor technology you were working on. Can you expand upon that a little bit?
4: That's right. Okay, like um, like, like perovskite and such? That, that's correct. That would be, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, would, that would probably be the one
2: that's uh, most popular today. <laughs> yes, so yeah, yes, it's yes. in, the, in the lab today. Um, the most popular emerging semiconductor for photovoltaics is the metal halide perovskite. Most commonly, mm. this is a system that features a metal known as lead and the halide being iodide. And in the lab, they are the most efficient thin film solar cell in existence. Um, and in terms of photovoltaic technologies, uh, converting you know terrestrial sunlight, one sun not concentrated, they are the third most efficient technology, you know, third to gallium arsenide and silicon being first and second. Um, and they've done this in about a decade. The first paper on this ever was 2009. Uh, the first report of a perovskite being used in, as, as an absorber in a photovoltaic system, um, and so that's pretty remarkable. Uh, what in my lab, what we study largely surrounding perovskite solar cells is their stability. The efficiencies mm-hmm. have made it right they're at that point where you can think about deploying this as long as you can have it sit there and be stable for a long enough period of time to really realize the levelized cost of energy that you would want and you have to integrate that 25 percent over 15 years to realize that low cost and if you, could, right. if you could the estimates today are that it would be probably factor two less expensive than silicon if you could get those lifetimes.
0: There you go. That's the uh, cutting edge of the perovskite uh, discussion right there with Barry <laughs> Rand from Princeton. I like it. I like it. Well, uh, <laughs> Jay, is there anything you want to touch on right now? Or are we?
4: No, I think we can kind, kind of need to move on to the political discussion. Mm-hmm. That's That's one of the big rocks right now. <laughs>
0: So, gentlemen, any any thoughts on, um, I guess, what's happening right now in the United States? Where we see policy going? Where we see the the support of the renewable energy industry and, and rates of deployment? I mean, we really are. If we're thinking about climate change and about meeting this challenge, I mean, we're pretty far off from where we need to be on a sheer deployed gigawatt basis, right? I think we're like about one-tenth of where we need to be. So uh, do you see uh, major shifts happening? I mean, what, what's the, for anybody? Maybe for Brent, anything uh, from your perspective right now?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to have Jesse go first. I I'll give you my thoughts, but Jesse, you... you have yeah, I mean, you... I'll, I'll just say, I mean, what,
3: what's interesting is that, you know, the economics, of course, as we talked about, are getting better and better for, you know, scaling wind and solar. And, and that's sort of a first you know, first necessary condition. But of course, it's not sufficient either. Um, You know, we need to see, you know, if you want to address climate change, we need to see the pace of deployment for wind and solar move much faster than markets are going to do on their own. Um, You know, if we had 100 years to let this transition play out, fine, just let solar keep getting cheaper and it'll keep gaining market share, uh, you know, and that's that. But you know, as you said, we're way behind um, on, you know, where we would ideally want to be in terms of trying to reduce global emissions of greenhouse gases and try to stabilize an already warming uh, and damaging climate environment. Um, And so we got to pick up the pace and accelerate faster and faster. And that's not going to happen unless you have the right supportive policy environment. And even broader than that, kind of a, a, you know, we sort of use as a catch all a social license for this transition, right, that we need to see, the country as a whole or regional stakeholders at least recognize that this is the future we want and we're moving that way and that's going to involve some big changes in how we make and use energy across the country Um, but it's going to be worth it and, and we're going to get a bunch of benefits out of it and we're going to you know manage the and distribute the impacts of that transition and so that's you know the broad thrust of an anlinger center initiative we call the rapid switch initiative which is trying to think about, all right, how quickly can we move and what are some of the barriers and bottlenecks beyond the kind of well-studied economics and, you know, sort of general engineering, you know, uh, constraints that we've thought about for a long time. So if the engineering is there, you can do it reliably, you can do it affordably. Now what? What are, what are the barriers to speed and how quickly can we transition? And, you know, policy is one siting these resources in ways that doesn't generate backlash um, you know whether it's high voltage transmission lines or new you know gas plants with carbon capture and sequestration where are we going to put the co2 you know there's all kinds of tr- tricky questions around around siting um, and then you know can we build infrastructure and ramp up industries at a pace that makes a big difference um you know in some of the modeling we've done for the net zero america study and i'm sure we'll see in the pjm study if you want to hit 100% you know, clean energy by 2035 or 2040, or get to net zero emissions by 2050, we need to see wind and solar deployment rates basically shattering records every year for the next 20 or 30 years. Yes. It's not enough to just do it once, you got to do it every year and do it again and do it the next year after that, right? Yep. Yep. Um, You know, big market opportunity, big employment opportunity in the US, um, but also a big challenge, and it needs the right kind of policy environment. So that's definitely where a lot of our work goes. And that's where the second half of the project they're working on with Brent is going to look at. So once we have the technical blueprint, as we've kind of described it, um, and we can show that this is cost effective, then the second question is, all right, well, how do we move the lever, you know, the levers of policy and investment and markets so that we can go that fast?
1: Yeah, that's it. And Joshua and Jason, I think if there's some trends that are encouraging in the political realm, I think most of us in the industry one way or another see the urgency stay within a degree and a half centigrade and, you know, you just, 2030 is a big benchmark on any of those paths that Jesse described, but there's been the political blocks, right, and it doesn't seem like it's moving. The economics are what I think is really beginning to shift. It's a convergence of the urgency starting to sink in, that something has to happen by 2030, and the fact that now in, let's call them red or purple states, we can offer the legislatures some pretty good economics with local tax revenues and jobs without raising rates. I think that we couldn't offer that three years ago. And when we present that message, first it's disbelief. And when they get under under the numbers, whether it's a utility executive or a state legislator or a speaker of a house in a reluctant state, these economics are pretty compelling to bring more people into the fold. So that's why I'm, uh, uh, let's say we're counting on common sense to come through on this politics, not just from the environmental side, but from common sense on urgency of not taking undue risks and then the mm-hmm. economics, taxes and jobs just, you know come in and take it away. And I hope to see some of that in this study. I think we will.
4: That's good. I mean, do you see people actually willing to have that conversation? And the, the, the disbelief is something that I've bumped into myself, and I and I, I understand that 100%. So, if, if they, right. they're even willing to have the conversation in the first place.
1: <laughs> if to, right. If to, there's yeah. an opening, right? Yeah. So, um, those economics, and with what Barry's talking about, if those economics continue, it's uh, there's really excess power that you can then put into storage, or if it goes to hydrogen, or Electrification of vehicles with the shaped Mm -hmm. loads. I mean, it's just a fascinating, like I said, uh, academic uh, challenge. So uh, last time I was here, I was just kind of alone on the developer side. It's nice to have a little Princeton backing, right,
0: Joshua? (laughs) 100%. 100%. Uh, Jesse, did you want to jump in there? I saw your-
3: I was just reminded as Brett was talking about, so, you know, prior to my academic days, I spent a few years, um, you know, working in public policy and um, sort of the think tank role and before that in a more kind of direct advocacy role at a group called Renewable Northwest in the Pacific Northwest. And it was in, around there when we um, helped pass and implement the Oregon Renewable Energy Act, which set up the renewable portfolio standard in the state it was 25%. Of electricity from renewables by 2025. At the time, I think it's now been doubled to 50% by 2030, in five more years. So you see what you know how quickly these things ramp up. Mm-hmm. But I'm reminded of the conversations of the legislature, which hinged entirely on the things that Brent was just talking about. You know, it was the sheriff from rural Wasco County who could come in and say, you know, we didn't have 24/7 911 coverage before we started deploying wind in the state in, the, in our county and getting the tax base from those wind farms. And now we've got two new sheriff's deputies, a new squad car and 24 seven dispatch, you know, and talking to rural you know, representatives of, you know, Republican representatives of, of Eastern Oregon, you know, about what this meant for their counties or farmers in Sherman County who are saying, look, we don't pay any property taxes anymore in our county because the property tax base is entirely filled by wind farms and we now have gold-plated schools, right? We got some <laughs> of the you know, the best funding for our nice, Nice state, testimonial. Right? So I think yeah. what's changing and the more we get these projects built, you know, and it took public policy to build those projects, right? It took, you know, Brent said the trade-off was, you know, was there 10 years ago. Yeah, you got the benefits but you paid more in rates or through policy. And that's starting to shift where now it's like the incremental cost is negligible but you still get the benefits and you have a lot of projects to go point to that aren't hypothetical, they're real you know, where you've got projects, you know, all over the, all over the region that are really delivering those benefits and you can bring people in to speak to that. So I do think, you know, people will see the benefit um, over time and it does take, you know, some concerted efforts because the costs have changed so fast that there is disbelief, right? I mean, costs for wind have come down, wind and solar come down 70 and 90% respectively in the last decade. And most, much of that is just in the last three or four years. So if you were paying attention to headlines a few years ago, you'd believe that, you know, solar costs twice as much as it does today. And you know, and so it takes you a little while to educate folks as to where we're at and where those trends are headed.
0: That education is kind of an interesting point. Uh, I mean, do, do you feel like we're approaching a, a fork in the road right now? I mean, it, is, could this be a really key moment in our uh, our our you know the combating climate change? Uh, do you see that that this being a hot topic in the election? Are we going to be hearing about energy and especially with all those case studies? I mean, it really is bipartisan. The notion of all that inherent value. Uh, Great-paying jobs, uh, lower cost of electricity, all these new opportunities opening up. Are we going to be hearing about this? Do you think in the next couple of months, and is it gonna, that education going to start to happen on a national basis?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. I, we'll, we'll see. I mean, my my guess, just as an individual, is that I would assume that given the economic crisis that we're in um, and the public health crisis, that's going to dominate, you know, the political discussion. And insofar so far as um, clean energy and clean energy deployment can be part of the economic return in renewal. Um, I think they'll work their way into the political conversation through that lens, probably less so through climate change. You know, I think we probably had the heyday for that in primary, the democratic primary where you had candidates fighting with each other to be the climate candidate and, you know, propose the most bold plan. You know, the interesting outshot is that, is that, you know, some of the most bold elements of those plans have made them into, um, you know, Joe Biden's uh, platform now and they're actually usually adopted after the primary ended, after he sort of wrapped things up, he went and kind of grabbed some pieces from, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Jay Inslee and, you know, and other candidates and wrapped them into his plan. So, you know, I think they've set out a marker in the primary process and, you know, and Biden's adopted a lot of that. And, and I think in terms of how do we, you know, whether we see a political discussion will probably be, you know, in that, that um, realm of the opportunity, you know, on the economics and how that can help us um, repower and rebuild the economy. You know, we want to be clear that, clean energy jobs are not going to make up for you know 15% unemployment all on their own right it's the biggest biggest unemployment we've seen since the great depression but they can be a big part of that um, and they can be a big part of a longer term you know economic growth story not just the recovery from the recession so we're trying to do a lot to quantify those impacts as well you know air pollution Uh, benefits, jobs benefits, you know, where that, how that's distributed across the country, all that's going to factor into the decision making that, you know, stakeholders and politicians make.
0: So oh, thank you for that. So do we see, what is the timeline of this research project? When will we start to see some of the, uh, the findings? And then how do you see that transitioning? Or I kind of get a sense that part of this, part of your role here is to not only do the research, but also find ways to get that closer to both policymakers and, and the, and the kind of corporate side. So how does that work from here?
3: Yeah, so if I'm not mistaken, I think we're, we're basically trying to do the, this technical blueprint um, by the kind of first quarter of next year. And then the the follow up quickly on that with a policy roadmap and market design roadmap that kind of looks at what are the policy levers that need to change or put in place or a menu of those options, right? There's probably more than one route we can go down from a policy perspective that could put us on that actual path to build out that blueprint. And that's where I think we're looking at the third quarter of next year. So, do you, you know, if you were...
0: Oh, sorry. Do you, do you, t- do you work with like SEPA, the Smart Electric Power Alliance and SIA and some of those folks, do you have plans to kind of coordinate with them in that, in that part of the process?
4: Well, I don't
3: know if we, we'll see when we get closer to, to the you know end of the report, which kinds of stakeholders we'll engage with. I know that's one of the things that's great about partnering with community energy is they're not just developer. They're also very actively out in, you know, regulators offices and, you know, legislators offices talking about these kinds of things and, and commissioning studies like this, which frankly, you know, a lot of developers don't do, right? They're they're not they're looking at their next project and not the, the bigger picture. So it's one of the great things about working with with Brent and the community and energy team is they're gonna help get this out in the world too. But we also do a lot of that. Um, and maybe Barry you could talk a bit more about our engagement with with New Jersey and, and PJM, you know, states. And we we want to do a lot the reason we're excited about looking at our backyard first with PJM is that you know we we can have an influence here in our in our neighborhood. Nice.
2: Sure. I mean, yeah, part of my role in the Anlinger Center is as the Associate Director for External Partnerships. And so I was, you know, I, I had the opportunity to meet Brent for the first time this past February at, I think, the last event that we held in Princeton, you know, in person. Um, and at that time, it was clear that Brent was sort of someone that's taken the arc of this company from well, pretty forward looking, making wind development pretty early on, solar development pretty early on, and is, is sort of thinking about, always thinking about what's next. And we have a cohort of, of um, sort of people that we have, have in our corporate affiliates program known as E-filiates, of Energy and affiliates, E-filiates. And um, that, you know, that include um, utilities such as PSEG um, who also have a stake in this and are willing to provide data um, to aid in our investigations and modeling efforts. Um, obviously, they are part of the PJM interconnection, and you know we feature com- other companies as well. But um, you know, most specific to this, you know, I think I think is the interactions we've had with PSEG that have been very positive. Um, community Energy is is going to be a, a fantastic partner as we continue to understand how to transition from fossil heavy to renewable heavy, because even though there's maybe broad consensus on what to do. Overall, there's not consensus on what to do for each specific place and how, when, like those are the, the toughest things to, to sort right. of manage in all of this, keeping the, the economics at, at, at day.
0: Got it. You know, uh, and, and to that end, Brent, when, when I, when I was trying to get a, a sense of what this partnership was about and how it was, uh, you know, what, uh, uh, Barry and his team were doing in, in terms of creating these types of partnerships and how you reached, I said to myself, I've, I haven't really seen a developer make, take this kind of step. I mean, maybe it's happened before, but it felt like really kind of a new step to see a developer kind of commission research or to partner with researchers to be able to get these answers. Usually we kind of, you know, I don't know, as a, as a developer, certainly not at your scale, but in my development days, I, you know, we look around for the information that was available and make decisions based off of that, but you're doing something pretty proactive. How did you come about that idea?
1: We're we're hoping that, um, you know, developers talk about the limits of academic studies and how they're, pointing us to do this and do that, but that's not gonna happen on the ground. Yeah. And folks with the bigger picture, policymakers and academics that have the bigger view, look at it and say, well, if the developers would just, you know, stop trying to do this and move into a logical uh, you know, portfolio, we could get there a lot faster. So that's the idea is just looking at what's missing. And we think we're not the only ones doing this, of course, uh, Princeton and, and community energy but I think it is definitely the need is to bring this thinking now down to a blueprint is the best way I could say it because I don't know about you, each of you on the phone, but you know, one morning I'll wake up uh, thrilled with the kind of progress that's happening with economics and adoption and solar and wind and decarbonization and policy attention. And the next morning I wake up saying, you know, if we're gonna get the decarbonization by 2030, we gotta be investing that capital or at least planning for it in the next two years so that and those mornings are more depressing right so the idea is to bring uh those two together that's that's the idea and uh i think we got a great team to do it others are going to do it alongside of us and we welcome it but it's time to get the blueprint not just the concept
0: Nice. Well, maybe we'll see uh, some other uh, similar things happening in different regions across the country. And as Barry said, get kind of more granular on exactly how, when and what we can do in those specific areas of the grid. So the national grid. Very cool stuff, gentlemen. I really appreciate your time today. I'm so glad we could meet up and connect and kind of get updated, Brent, and all your progress and what you're up to. Uh, do please keep us in, you know, uh, uh, up to speed on your development. And if you want to jump back on the solar coaster with us, you're always welcome. We'd love to hear updates from you or any any closing words or final final thoughts gentlemen before we wrap it
1: yeah, there'll be lots to talk about on the economics so you know we'll, we'll talk to you again
0: all right thank you brent really appreciate your time today from community energy thank you barry anything you want to you cover last bit here
2: no i'm good i want to thank you uh for giving us the opportunity here today
0: okay aloha barry thank you very much jesse it's been a pleasure to hear all your insights uh, uh anything you'd like to share
3: yeah, thanks. Um, great to talk with you, and hopefully we'll, we'll be back in touch when we've got some findings from the first phase of the study. We'd love to share the blueprint with you when it's done.
0: All right. Well, folks, this has been uh, Community Energy, uh, second time on the solar coaster with us, and Barry Rand and Jesse Jenkins of Princeton University, and uh, a great initiative here with this new partnership. So look forward to keeping in touch with you, gentlemen, and uh, well, aloha and ahui ho. Thanks, guys. See you soon.